We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, whose footsteps mark this land and whose presence continue to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast. I'm Brittany Eklund and I'm here with Dylan Cave. This summer we are taking some time to catch up with last season's researchers. And today we are following up with Dr. Trevor Hamilton and we're going to talk a little bit about trials and tribulations of science and learn a little bit more about fish. If you have not yet listened to Trevor's first episode, we recommend you go back and you gotta give go that back. a listen. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite episodes. Please go back and check it out. <laughs> uh, Trevor, thank you so much for coming back in and checking in with us. Well, Brittany and, and Dylan, I appreciate the opportunity to come back. Absolutely. 100%. Um, something that we really have not touched on at all in the entirety of this podcast yet is kind of uh, some of the trials and tribulations of science and that sometimes there is some rejection. So you mentioned uh, something. Do you want to tell us what's going on? Um, definitely. So science uh, comes with a lot of challenges. And one of those challenges involves submitting work for publication uh, under peer review. Quite often, uh, the response from the reviewers is uh, rejection. Uh, and so scientists learn to, to deal with that and revise, make their work better, and resubmit with later hopes of publication. And that's just the part of the game that essentially we play. And indeed, we have had some rejection in the last little while. Oh, no. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we have uh, one study in particular. Um, is uh, The research was performed maybe four or five years ago by Erica Lowe, uh, an honor student of Dr. Malika Shalomans. And one of my students, Andrea Johnson, is working on resubmitting, uh, reevaluating, reanalyzing the data. So we did submit that, and it got uh, revise and resubmit, which means the reviewers say, you know, do better, work on these areas. Uh, and so we did. Um, we got a, I, I got the help of Ryan Verbitsky, who helped Andrea reanalyze the data. We resubmitted, expecting good news, and they said, actually, no, you cannot have this paper in our journal. No. <laughs> and that's part of, you know, it's part of the way science works. So we thought, well, you know what? Let's make this paper even better. So I got the help of a statistician, Brian Franzak, who went through a lot of the data and performed complicated statistical techniques. One of them is called a principal component analysis, which I won't, I won't go into because I don't fully understand. Yeah, and I will... <laughs> yeah. And so long story short, a lot of researchers in the field uh, have published data on zebrafish anxiety and anxiety-like behavior. So they look at fish in certain arenas and they see them uh, perform certain behaviors. And some of them have published saying, well, look at this fish. It's swimming really fast. Therefore, it must be anxious. Whereas in other papers, they say, well, look at this fish. It's not moving. Therefore, it must be really anxious. So what is it? Is a swimming fast anxious or a swimming slow anxious? So, so what we did with our study is we had multiple tests uh, that we put fish in with a drug called chlordiazepoxide, which is an anxiolytic drug. It relieves anxiety. Uh, we looked at certain um, variables within those tests. But importantly, we also looked at what happens to the immobility and the velocity of the fish. And we found that there's no relation. 
So when trying to publish something like this, if, if a reviewer is someone who is on the, on the side of saying fish swim faster when they're anxious, they may not like our work because we're saying they're wrong. Yeah. And so you get this, uh, it becomes a bit challenging if people believe in a, a certain way of doing things. But I think with our new stats, we're going to resubmit this to a better journal. So we're actually going to step it up a bit. <laughs> Shots fired. Yeah. And, you know, it may ruffle some feathers, but that's what science is sometimes. Mm -hmm. And this is what our data shows. We have all of the videos. We can show everyone, every single fish and every single test. And we have put that online in a repository. Yeah. Anyone can reanalyze and check it out and, you know, see for themselves. So that's one, you know, trials and tribulations, you know, we cope with rejection and, you know, it's like the phases of grief. And then you decide, you know what, let's make this better and let's submit it to a higher journal. Resilience, man. Yeah. Oh, will you? You learn to have a thick skin, I think, as a, as a scientist. And that's one thing, you know, we try to also teach our students. It's also a rule in life, you know, yeah. not everything is peaches and cream. Yeah. Or so my grandpa used to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're totally right. Like, we, we, we can set ourselves up for success as much as we can. And, and sometimes it's just like it just doesn't work out that way this time. Mm -hmm. And I, I've noticed that a lot with grant writing too. Mm -hmm. You know, you, sometimes you just don't get the funding and it's not because the, the stuff you're doing isn't important. Yep. You know, sometimes yeah. it's for different things. Well, it's very competitive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It just, it seems interesting because, you know, with, you saying like that this this kind of rejection and revision and whatever is so ubiquitous that um, like researchers probably don't even think to mention it on the show because it's like, yeah, I've had to rewrite a grant or I've had to do whatever. And we tend to focus really on projects that they're working on currently or projects that they have had published. And we really haven't had an opportunity to talk about what happens behind all mm -hmm. of that and what it takes to get there. So, I mean, that's really interesting. I wish you all the best of luck on the new <laughs> submission. Um, something I want to actually follow up on quickly just before we dive into new projects. Uh, acid. Fish and acid. Yes. Yeah. Can you tell us? Um, I think last time we spoke on the podcast, the project was still in the works. The data mm -hmm. wasn't quite in yet. Yep. Uh, can you give us a little update on that project? That one is another one that is almost ready for submission. So that is a, a previous honor student, Ethan Hagen, that now is working with Dr. Yan Bojang and, and psychiatry at the U of A. He's a grad student, which I'm co-supervising. So we're working on uh, submitting that, which hopefully will happen at the end of this month. And the long story short is when we microdosed fish with LSD, we had three different concentrations based on previous work we found next to no effects um, a day later as well as a week later. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. What it demonstrates is um, acutely a one-day dose previous researchers showed would have a significant effect, but we showed that if you repeatedly give these fish LSD, uh, it, at that point doesn't have any side effects. Yeah. So this means means for a doctor, for, for a, a therapist, it's something that could be potentially used by humans to treat, you know, anxiety disorders and depression. And there are some large-scale human studies going on now. Yeah, with, um, the resurgence of kind mm -hmm. of psychedelic studies is, is really interesting. Yeah. Um, 
So, okay, so that's not quite published, but not it's, yet. it's still in the works. Yeah, science is, is very slow. Yeah. <laughs> um, sometimes it can move quickly, but for the most part, it takes quite a long time to draft something and go through all the authors, have edits, have revisions, and then get submitted. And then, as I said, it, the result may be a rejection or more revisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think my one of my longest running projects was data that was collected in 1999 that I started working on in about 2005. And we finally published that, I think in 2014. Wow. Wow. So not so fast. No, not so fast, but I mean, that's in, it's an incredible process. Mm -hmm. And when you think about, I mean, you're a neuroscientist. So I think the, the work that you're doing is incredibly complex, right? And especially when you're using like model organisms and yeah, it's very cool. You can't so, just throw it into the field right away. You know, there's <laughs> no. yeah. some potential problems there. Throw I it think. in and see what sticks. Yeah. Well, I hope you will keep um, myself updated in particular mm-hmm. because I think it's such a, a cool, interesting study that I'd love to, to read the published version. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, I guess now is the time to kind of dive into, you mentioned you got quite a few things we do, we on have, the on the burner. So dive right in. Tell us what's going on, what you're up to, what you're working on. Okay, we have so much going on. My students keep me very busy, um, <laughs> which is great. But one thing we did just submit was a project that uh, involves infrasound. I can't remember if I talked about this last time. I don't know, but it sounds like it's up Dylan's alley. So maybe not, wasn't that memorable, but infrasound is uh, basically frequencies of sound that are below the human hearing threshold. So below 20 hertz. And so the question is, do fish respond to infrasound? Uh, And infrasound is often generated by a lot of uh, human air conditioners and big electronic devices, as well as wind turbines. And a lot of wind turbines happen to be placed in the oceans. So if you have a wind turbine in the ocean, it's generating infrasound. Humans can't hear it. But the question is, is that affecting the fish underneath the water? Oh. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Dr. Rodney Schmaltz, a, a colleague in the psych department, studies infrasound with humans to see if it alters human behavior. Yeah, I've heard of people saying, like, I live by a wind turbine, I'm going crazy. Mm-hmm. And maybe it is infrasound. Could be. I have a question, though. So it's a very low frequency, you said? Correct. Don't some marine mammals use low frequencies to communicate? I think some do. Uh, The question that's relevant is at what amplitude might those be? Ah. And could the wind turbines be creating really loud infrasound? Okay. That's disrupting the fish. Um, And also importantly for me is Dr. Schmaltz, who's performing his infrasound human studies, right beside my lab, <laughs> affecting my fish behavior. Oh, yeah. the plot thickens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so we thought, well, let's test this. And we found that at 15 hertz, um, there was a, an aversion to the sound. So the fish move away from the location that the sound source, uh, essentially where it is, uh, which is interesting. And, you know, what we've done is we had the sound generated outside of the water column, whereas a lot of other researchers found... Uh, they made these complex contraptions that produced frequencies of infrasound within the water column. But our question is more relevant to, you know, do wind turbines alter fish behavior? 
does Dr. Rodney Schmaltz's infrasound in his lab affect my fish? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and so that was just submitted last week. So okay. um, that was Kale Scatterty, my honor student, current honor student, worked on uh, writing that up along with Taylor Pittman, who performed the research, and uh, Tristan Eckersley was Rod's student, who uh, helped us tweak the infrasound creation device, the, basically the speaker. Awesome. Yeah, it was really neat. So that's a kind of a cool, fun collaboration. Um, cause those happen all the time. You yeah. start talking to people and say, Hey, let's work together on this project that normally we may not independently come up with. Um, so we'll see how that goes. So yeah. That's a fun one. Another, you know, ongoing project is, uh, is with terpenes. So we, I think we talked about that we last did, time. Which are the aromatic compounds. You guys are great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always impressed with how much you know about uh, my science. I've just I been mean, experimenting with terpenes myself. <laughs> nice. <so>. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How's that coming along? Great. So we have, um, we've been working with alpha pinene as well as beta caryophyllene. And Andrea Johnson was spearheading this project. And I had a couple independent study students, Alicia Stewart and Ismail El Hakim, that also worked on um, terpenes. And we took alpha pinene which is comprised of a, a plus and minus form. So it's an enantiomer. I won't get into too much chemistry. Yeah. <laughs> but we tested the alpha pinene itself, the plus minus form, as well as the plus and the minus independently. And we found that there were differential and significant effects on the fish behavior with that terpene, which is neat. Uh, beta carrier finally, we didn't find anything, which is also interesting. So we're going to try to publish that soon. And then... There's a big debate about this entourage effect, whether or not THC and CBD that are in cannabis work together with terpenes to create the effects that cannabis yeah. has. Yeah. So one of the ways we can, we can test that is we could move on to THC and CBD, but we can also use antagonists of the CB1 receptors to try to block the effects of the terpenes that we know in the past have significant effects. So that's probably where we'll go with that project. Because it's actually really difficult to study cannabinoids on their own. So yeah. it's illegal, essentially, because the Cannabis Act says you, I can't just go grab terpene or grab cannabis from a store and bring it to my lab um, unless it's, I get the proper approval. So you can do all you want with it, yeah, but I can't but as can. a scientist. No. What if I have a you know microscope and beakers at home and I just take it there? Don't do it at McEwen. <laughs> Don't do it at McEwen. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so but terpenes themselves are, do not follow under the uh, certain regulations. The terpenes yeah. are fine, and there's so many of them. We're trying to hit the super classes of terpenes right now, um, and then move on from there. So that one's uh, is, is fun and exciting. Uh, it's going great. Um, I'm still working on. Speaking of the duration of science, a project with carbon dioxide and ocean acidification and damselfish. Yeah, that was research was collected in 2016. And in this case, I'm the slow one who's taking a while to write it up. But it's, again, there's a lot going on. Yeah, I was like, you got a lot going on. Yeah, yeah but it's good. It keeps, keeps me out of trouble. Yeah. I, say. I hear you there, man. Yeah, yeah so that one's another interesting one with uh, collaboration from, with Scripps Institution of Oceanography, which is uh, UCSD and the Smithsonian in uh, Panama. Oh, so, very cool. Yeah, some great collaborations. Um, and we, you know... We'll hopefully have that submitted relatively soon when I get my work done. <laughs>
Yeah. So those are some, some of the ongoing projects. I mean, I just finished a, a chapter in uh, what's called the Encyclopedia of Fish Physiology. Okay. Yeah. And so I was asked by one of the editors to write a chapter on behavior and toxicology, mm -hmm. uh, sort of a step-by-step -step guide. So I, I got some help from a postdoc from the University of North Texas, as well as some collaborators there. So we did just submit that and it was, you know, like 40 pages or something. So that took a, a lot of work to get done, but it's a, a simple, actually it's not simple. It's a, it's a complex guide to how you could study fish behavior in relation to toxins or toxicants. So that'll be hopefully out sometime soon too. So there's lots of reading for you guys. I mean, yeah, I'm going to keep you busy. <laughs> a ton. Um, yeah. Cause working like toxicology and fish is kind of, you've done a lot of it. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine at this point in time, you're kind of beyond an expert ah, in the field. I don't know. I'm still learning. I learn every day. <laughs> <laughs> I try to. And over the summer is great. We had a, a visiting researcher to McEwen. So a PhD student from the University of North Texas came to work in, in our lab and do work with uh, benzoapyrene, which is a, a, a toxicant that's present in a lot of oil mixtures. So oil sense process water and crude oil and that type of thing. So yeah. she was looking just at that. And we wanted to see if it had an effect on object recognition memory in fish. Okay. That's something that we've kind of uh, done in the past. We essentially developed a procedure for testing object recognition memory in fish. So she wanted to see, does this compound that we know alters dopamine levels affect learning and memory? So she had a grant and it took a couple of years for her to get here. So Alicia Dunton's her name, and she's uh, I'm on her committee at the University of North Texas. And so she's very diligent. She wanted to come to Canada and visit and do research. And so two years later, after COVID kind of chilled out a little bit, she came here and um, worked very hard. And this test is it's, it's very important when you know for the control fish to behave properly. Yeah. To show that they have a memory trace. And then you look at the effect of the compound. Well, the controls didn't behave. Yeah. I'm like, what if you just get bad luck and you get a fish with like dementia yeah. or, you know, memory loss mm. or you got bonked on the head or something. Or there's a speaker in the next room. Messing yeah. Exactly. Up. Yes. <laughs> yes. Very good point. So that's why obviously we repeat things. We perform yeah. things multiple times. And she didn't find any effects of this very potentially toxic compound. And it could be because our controls didn't uh, behave as we expected them to, or it could have been due to a couple other factors we're, we're talking about. And that's, you know, another example, one of those uh, swing and a miss. You yeah. Know? But it's still important. She can still use this data, and negative data is, is still important. So she well, can still yeah. use it for her thesis, but it's not going to make headlines. Yeah, but I mean, that's the thing. You don't know what to do until you know what not mm -hmm. to do. Um, and I think that that's such an interesting piece of science. And that the I was having a conversation about this the other day with science is not out there to prove what you think is right. It's out there to disprove everything to the point where you can confirm what you think. Like it's you're trying to disprove things, mm. not necessarily prove them. Yeah, I mean, science, the purpose of science is to investigate. Mm -hmm. We have questions we want to answer, and we do the best to objectively get to that goal. Sometimes it leads to a million other questions, but that's okay. Keeps us busy. Yeah. And we keep pursuing knowledge. Absolutely. Sometimes the knowledge is opposite to what we used to know, 
and that's okay. Sometimes it confirms it, but it's an ongoing process that will never stop. A hundred percent. We are <laughs> running out of time a little bit. Um, you mentioned a grant you're working on. Did you want to talk about that a bit? Uh, sure, sure. So that is something uh, that I have been really thinking hard about what to to plan. So it's more of a, the, you know, in terms of a, a large scale grant, it's more so what is the project, main project that we'll focus on in the lab? And in the past, it has been ocean acidification and freshwater acidification. But in the future, um, we're actually moving into a new lab space in the next couple of weeks, um, which is amazing. We have, exciting. yeah, it's, it's exciting and scary <laughs> <laughs> uh, because we have to shift everything over, get everything dialed and tweaked again. Um, but we have in this facility um, much more space for fish. So that means we can start looking at transgenerational effects of things. We can start selectively breeding and we can start, I want to start tagging fish. So basically you can, we have ways to mark them so we can follow them over time. So based on the idea of, you know, anxiety, like behavior and boldness in, in fish, you know, I'm curious if a fish is on the high level of anxiety or low level, will they continue that way throughout the course of their lives? That's just a simple question. We can, we can study that easily in our lab, but no one's really done it yet. And then can we selectively breed, kind of like, you know, trying to this in 1934 with maize bright and maize dull rats. Can yeah. we take high anxiety fish and breed high anxiety or, and vice versa with low anxiety fish? And then, you know, there's just so many more questions. Like if we have a compound, say a psychedelic or something we know works to treat anxiety, how will this work differentially on the high or low anxiety groups? Yeah. So... Again, infinite questions, but we want to start uh, characterizing some of these tests a little bit better, like we've we've done, um, which I discussed at the start of this podcast with Brian Franzak and the stats with Andrea. Mm -hmm. um, is does immobility and velocity is that related to anxiety? How do we best measure anxiety in these fish? Yeah, and then let's move forward and keep students busy for many many hours and days and weeks and years. Yeah, and yourself and myself. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's a grant that I'll be writing in the near future, and you know, hopefully it'll be successful. But even if it's not, um, we'll still continue that line of research. Yeah, a hundred percent. Well, we wish you uh, all the best. Is there any last uh, parting thoughts or any last shout-outs you want to give? I know you brought a lot of notes with a lot of names of people. I did. Um, just want to thank all those people in general because the only reason I'm here is because of those students and collaborators that have made everything possible. Uh, and so it's, it's really great to have such a, such a solid team of people who are dedicated and, uh, great scientists. And I also want to thank you two for doing this. I think it's oh, fantastic. You're so welcome. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> Anytime that we get to talk about fish. And I but, get to like learn so much. Like if I go back and listen to all the episodes that we've done so far, it has been such a, uh, learn, great learning experience for me because I would never venture into a lot of these different fields. Um, and find out about a lot of this stuff. So this is, uh, you know, it's beneficial for me. A lot. Way yeah. more interesting Excellent. at cocktail parties. Yeah. Like, did you know this thing? People give fish LSD. Yeah, or you know, there's like so many like cool, interesting projects. Mm -hmm. I think every time somebody asks me about, oh, what's your podcast about? You come up every Excellent. single time. All right, I'm happy. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank you so much again, Trevor. And... Uh, 
we'll see you next time when we follow up again. Yeah. Yeah. Time. <laughs> this Absolutely. has been a research recasted reunion. Uh, thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for more follow-ups with our researchers. Please visit us on Instagram at Research Recasted to give us a like and a follow. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you like and listen. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Dylan Cave and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design and editing by Dylan Cave. Research, copy editing and scripting by Brittany Eklund. Our executive producer is Ray Barry.